0: Welcome to More Than Mythos, the podcast exploring the mythological threads that weave us all together. I'm Morrigan, and thank you for joining me on this ancient journey to understand our modern world. And today, I'm so excited to share with you this amazing interview that I did with Bennett Shoup. We originally met on TikTok, where they post a variety of really, really incredible content about Hecate. And over the last few months, I've had so many people ask me to talk about Hecate online, and I just don't feel like I had the right resources and the right knowledge to do that, so I wanted to call upon Bennett to share some of their absolutely incredible knowledge. So Bennett is a devotee of the covenant of Hecate and a longtime follower of the goddess. Their spiritual research is centered around Hekate, classical religion, and ancient Greek magic and witchcraft. In their more formal academic work, their research focuses on feminist and queer theory and LGBT subcultures. So we are in for a real treat today, as you can probably already tell. And I was absolutely blown away by this interview, blown away by the level of nuance that they brought to the table. And I just really hope that you enjoy this as much as I did. I learned so much from them. And without further ado, here is our interview. Please help me welcome Bennett to More Than Mythos. Bennett and I have been chatting about Greek mythology while I have um, a plethora of technical issues here. and But I would love to know, Bennett, how did you begin your journey of studying Hekate? And can you also pronounce this for us? Because I've heard it pronounced so many different ways.
1: So there's a lot of different pronunciations. All of them can be correct for people. I think that the focus on pronunciation tends to miss the point sometimes. Um, It's often used as like, well, I know this correctly. And it's like, well, technically none of us do because it's ancient Greek. And while there are (laughs) theories, we don't actually know how it was pronounced. So there's, you know, varying theories of Hekate, 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 um, you know, the modern Greek Hekati, or there's, you know, theories that the ancient Greek was more like Hekate, Mm. There's a lot of different pronunciations. I tend to use the modern Greek, um, just because it's the easiest to access in terms of like a Greek language. But also, it it does make me, as much as it sounds silly, it does make me feel like in character a little bit. Um, (laughs) But I do, I do, I'm trying to like learn Greek pronunciation, but for um, ease and not sounding pretentious in any way, I'm gonna be pronouncing it probably Hekati. Um, okay. Just cool. so that people know who I'm talking about, and they're not like, "There's no H there. What's happening?" Um, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I I like the pronunciation of Hikate as well. I just think it's ridiculous to correct people about pronunciation of a language that isn't spoken and hasn't been spoken for literally thousands of years.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I totally agree. Where it's just kind of like an excuse to, like, flex something that no one really cares about. <laughs> but, so yeah. you identify as a Hellenic pagan, right?
1: I actually don't identify as a pagan. Oh, I identify okay. as a polytheist. And the reason gotcha. for that is that pagan is often a term that I feel is, like, Imposed upon history in a way that may not be 100% accurate. And pagan has a very like historical connotation of like the religion of the countryside um, and like rustic religion. And as an Athenian reconstructionist, for the most part, that's very much not countryside. You know, it was a very urban and like formal um, religious setting. And I prefer the term polytheist because I really like the emphasis being on that I worship multiple gods rather mm-hmm. than what pagan has taken on the connotation of, of not Christian, because I find that a lot of people like to define themselves in opposition to Christianity in a way that I don't personally identify with. I don't have an issue with the term pagan. And I think that it's a beautiful term for people who use it. Um, It's just not one that I identify with because I want it to be focused on the fact that I worship all of the gods. Whereas a lot of people who call themselves Hellenic pagans will focus on like one or two or a few of the deities but my focus is not on forming my own religious path, but on reconstructing the historical one. So I want to focus uh. on the fact that I practice an ancient Greek religion, or at least a reconstruction and revival of that religion, rather than a new kind of Hellenic paganism, which seems to be based more in like modern understandings of paganism and neo-paganism, which are very valid ways of approaching the gods and I think that it's important that as a reconstructionist and somebody who favors tradition, I don't do it because I think it's correct or better, but I think it's just an approach I know that works. And, you know, it's like, when you think about religion as a as a technology for approaching the divine, I think of tradition as one that we have proof that it works. People did it for thousands of years. We know people did it and it's effective. Whereas Revivalism is simply a new technology, a new way of approaching the divine. And I think that's wonderful and beautiful. For me, I just feel more attached to tradition. And so I think that this dichotomy between revival and tradition is kind of manufactured in a way that, that does a disservice to both of them. Because we're not just doing things because that's the way they were done. We're doing them because we know that they work. And so I really like to kind of destabilize that dichotomy and, you know, focus on the fact that like tradition and revival are both important and beautiful ways of approaching the divine. They just come from different perspectives. They're two, they're two paths to the same destination.
0: Yeah. That's really such a lovely distinction. And one that I actually have never heard anyone speak about before. So I really appreciate that because I've I've just never heard it laid out like that. And this of like revival versus modern day paganism, because you're right, they're so incredibly different and have like, they feel like they have very different purposes and are pulling from history in such different ways. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting distinction. And thank you for explaining that to us. I would have literally never known the difference because I'm not, I'm practicing Pagan, so that's so cool. And so you would consider Hekate to be your primary goddess?
1: Yes, I would consider her to be a patron goddess. Hmm. Um, and the, the complicated thing with that is that patron has now taken on like a kind of different terminology um, within the neo-pagan movement of like the goddess that I most primarily worship. Um, but historically your patron would have likely been the deity that preserved over your family or your craft, like your occupation or role. Um, at least that's my understanding. I'm sure that there are scenarios in which that is different. Um, you know, and as somebody who who is who's really trying to like focus on my spiritual path right now, and like doing like occult stuff as like kind of um, a pursuit of like a way that I live my life, that kind of patronage is something that I identify with. Um, but I would also consider it, you know, her as as the goddess I'm devoted to. So I am, she is both my patron and I am a devotee to her, which mm. I do think are two different kinds of things. Um, in my personal conception of spirituality. Um, so I'd consider her my patron in a lot of the, the craft that I do um, because sometimes I am a witch for hire, as they call it. <laughs> um, but also um, I am devoted to her because I like her. I think that she's cool. Um, so she is the primary goddess that I, I worship within my practice. But they're all there for the most part.
0: That's amazing. And so did she reach out to you or did you choose her? And what like drew you to each other?
1: So I, that's a whole complicated issue. Okay. (laughs) And I do tend to be a little bit skeptical of the narrative that like the gods reach out to us and like we are chosen. It seems very much like this um, very individualist capitalist mode of spirituality in which we feel that the gods must approach us because we are so important. And you know, I don't think that's where a lot of people are coming from, but that is a kind of the connotations it has in my mind. Um, and I, I like to think of this kind of system of exchange um, that like, we often express interest and then the gods see that interest and they reach back. Um, mm-hmm. I think that the gods come to us in times of need, but I don't think that the gods are necessarily so involved in our everyday individual lives in the way that like, um, you know, kind of like Protestant Christianity has has promoted it as like, you know, the gods are invested in our us as personal beings and like, you know, our every action. Whereas when you look at the ancient world, the gods kind of didn't give a shit about normal everyday people. <laughs> yeah. And it's almost sometimes you wanted it that way because you look at the way that the gods interacted with people that they like favored or whose lives they were involved in, and they went through some some hell sometimes. Yeah. Um, and so I believe in this system uh, of hares, which is is um, this this kind of understanding of goodwill or grace, but it also means exchange, and it's the basic principle of ancient Greek religion. This idea that we give and they give um, mm. on the kind of like reciprocal relationship. And I really like that for the way we approach the divine first as well. It's a very complicated, like back and forth kind of moment. You know, I first became interested in Hikati through literature and, you know, you know, much to my shame, the Percy Jackson series um, was where I first heard the name, I think, you know, in elementary school and becoming interested in like, there's a goddess of magic. That's fun. And so, you know, at like recess, I'd pretend when we would play Percy Jackson or whatever, I'd be like, I'm the, the, the child of Hecate. And that was, you know, my introduction to her. And then as things progressed, I became interested in the occult and in, you know, polytheistic spirituality. And I was like, oh, I could actually worship this goddess. And so I started doing that but then, you know, my path with her really became formalized I want to say in high school around 14, 15 where I was like I'm going to be a, a devotee of, mm-hmm. of the goddess mm-hmm. and I started that path and I have not looked back since. You know, she is oh. there with me um you know, I'm sitting right by her shrine and today. You know, she is the, the 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 goddess that is the most important part of my life. And so I think that it's it's not necessarily I reached out to her or she reached out to me. I think it's we met each other in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, we should really focus on some more nuance in discussions of spirituality rather than like singular um, experiences. Because if we're talking about the divine, the divine is a multifaceted, complex, you know, many-faced kind of uh, being or realm of existence. Hmm. To define it by by a simple um, kind of narrative like that seems very misguided to me.
0: Absolutely. No, that's an, that's an excellent point. And like, yeah, you'll have to forgive me. A lot of my language around this is very colloquial. So I really appreciate like your insight because there is so much nuance in all of these different facets of of practice and of spirituality. Um, that I personally am not a part of, so I, yeah, I really appreciate your extremely detailed insight. It's awesome to hear, and I like, I love the Percy Jackson intro to be honest, <laughs> like because I think Percy Jackson for so many of us that um, both love mythology or are practicing in some way within that realm, or are, are looking at things from a scholarly way, um, a lot of our introductions were from kind of super inaccurate depictions of them from like our childhood you know and like I have those too where I had like the Greek mythology books from like Disney or whatever and I was like wow like Megan Hercules from Disney is that accurate absolutely not but it's like a really wonderful intro I think for for so many of us that are like really in love with these topics and have incorporated them into like our rituals or like our everyday lives or our like our academics and yeah, it's kind of, it's unexpected that these things that are so, I mean, bastardized are like kind of gateways in this way.
1: (laughs) It's because they're fun, you know, like the, like, I think that I'm not one of those people that are like, media depictions have to be accurate or I'm angry. You know, it's, I think that there's a way about being respectful to history that's Mm -hmm. important, but at the same time, Accurate depictions could be rather boring. Like, I don't want historically accurate witchcraft movies, except for (laughs) the witch because that movie was fire. That was um, an amazing movie. (laughs) But, um, I don't want, like, necessarily accurate Greek mythology movies because that could be kind of boring. It's like, ah, yes, here we go to the shrine today. We're gonna wash our hands and pray to the gods, go home and (laughs) think about how we're worried about getting food (laughs) this year. Yeah. Um, But sometimes it's fun to have the more cinematic, like, inaccurate depictions, because it's fun. And I think that we need to be able to understand that those things are separate, and that's okay. Um, I do think that there's some problems with the way people go about respecting and engaging with history that I wish were better. But I'm a fan of Greek mythology media, even the silly and accurate stuff. I like Disney's Hercules. I think that those are fun and great, but I think the problem becomes when we view this as truth and historical fact, which a lot of the public does does do and I think that that's where I do get a little bit pissy is like well it is a movie it's a movie it's a fictional narrative and that's cool and I love that but you know like Lore Olympus is not an accurate telling of Greek mythology and so I think that that's where some of the anger comes in for me mm-hmm. is that, that people will take it as fact because we, we don't tend to actually be willing to engage with historical cultures on their own terms we think that our terms are correct and that's where I think the, that the misguided notion is, and I think that that has a lot to do with the American cultural colonial mindset. Um, yeah, which is why I tend to trust scholars as opposed to, you know, practitioners or myth, you know, mythological narratives, because scholars tend to know a little bit more about what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I appreciate their their insight, and I do always get the little butterflies in my stomach when a scholar wants to acknowledge that what I, something I said was was brilliant or like <laughs> cool, you know. That that is a really affirming moment um, as a Reconstructionist. That that those are moments I live for. And I had a, a like classicist follow me back on TikTok, and I was like, oh, she's oh. doing the job right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and like yeah, those. Those little moments are so nice. <laughs> and there are, there's so many like really, really interesting um, people on TikTok who are talking about like history and, and like, you know, topics like this and who are providing like really amazing factual stuff and not just like comebacks. There's a lot of animosity on TikTok and like, in, and on all social media platforms, like of like who's right and who's wrong. And you know, like, and I get it all the time of almost the opposite where instead of having like, you know, a classicist or a scholar, like kind of acknowledge like the, like, you know, I'm another scholar and we're talking about this in a scholarly way. I have a lot of people who are um, practitioners saying like, well, you're wrong because my goddess told me personally that she feels like blah, blah, blah about this. And I'm just like, I don't know how to speak to you about this without saying that I just don't care. You know, it's like, I'm sorry. Like, I just don't care because I that's just that not a perfectly like, valid
1: response.
0: I feel like it is too, but it's so hard to kind of balance this. Like, I really want to be respectful of like your personal experience with this, but I also need to acknowledge that we are living really different realities and like your reality does not even remotely line up with any of the scholarly research that I have done and that's okay, but we can have different conversations about this, you know?
1: I think that that is why I like to stress a lot that like when we're having a conversation about history we're not talking about your path we're not talking mm. about your spirituality. I often share information that directly contradicts my own religious beliefs
0: mm, because I
1: care about telling the history in an accurate way of what we know and what we we theorize and what the scholarly consensus is there's a lot of bullshit that goes on with the Persephone and Demeter myth in particular, where they're like, well, actually, (laughs) Persephone and and Pluton were in love and secretly, and Demeter was a a horrible mother and didn't approve of it. And I'm like, it's fine if you believe that, but it is not historically founded. There is literally not one single recorded version of that story that depicts that or even did really depicts that they were in love. Yeah. And that's, you don't have to believe that. But what we can't do is just pretend that history didn't exist.
0: Yeah, no, I completely that's agree. that's why I like to
1: separate these conversations that I am talking about history. And I am not talking about most of the time my personal spiritual path or your spiritual path. There is a way that history happened. And if something does come out that there was a source that we just found that says this, great. I'm going to change my whole perspective on history and we're going to change the conversation. But until that point, talking about this as history and not about your personal spiritual path is the way that I'm going to continue to go about things because it's responsible. And it's not about saying, you can't believe this. You can't practice this. You can't observe this. I know better than you. It's about doing justice to the history of this culture who we are fortunate to have this information from. And it is about... It is about engaging with them in a respectful manner and not claiming that we know more about their gods than they did
0: because mm-hmm. we are guests. Mm-hmm. I love that, yeah. Yeah, I would actually love to hear some history about Hecate and where she originated from because I was kind of doing, you know, like some prep research for this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like with a lot of Greek gods, there's some evidence that they did not originate in Greece. And that there was almost these like proto images that we see of them, like further south or like further east. Is there like a is there a proto Hecate?
1: So the general like academic consensus that I'm familiar with is that Hecate has her origins in Anatolia and Caria, Asia Minor, um, specifically in like what we would now probably consider Turkey, um, where her like largest temple um, s- still stands. Um, at Lagina, and I believe that's how you pronounce it. Pronunciation might be iffy, um, but that temple is actually undergoing like um, reconstruction, and so we're actually seeing them kind of put together some of the historical structures. And there are some stuff, um, some artifacts from the temple that ex- that are kept in like different museums. Um, and I would love to see those returned to the temple. I, yeah. you know, there's there's a lot of theft that happens. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And, um, you know, kind of Mediterranean artifacts in particular, because the Mediterranean is kind of this, like, space in which so many of these, like, world religions were started. Um, You know, you have, like, the Vatican that probably has, like, really important historical, like, Jewish and and Muslim Um, artifacts that I would really love to see returned. And you know, you have Hobby Lobby of all people participating in like the theft and smuggling of historical artifacts. Um, But I would really like to see some of those structures returned to that temple um, so that we can have a more cohesive view of how that temple looked and how it would have functioned. And also because it would be nice for some modern day practitioners to be able to go and experience the temple as their spiritual predecessors would have done. But yeah, those are her... That is, I believe, the consensus about her origin. And, um, you know, but we first see her being mentioned in ancient Greek literature with with Hesiod's Theogony, um, which I believe was the 8th or 7th century BCE. Um, And, you know, there are theories that his family was a devotee of Hecate because he he writes such a, a lengthy passage on her called the is sometimes the hymn to Hecate. Um, and it, it's like, uh, in my copy, it's, it's a, a few pages. It's like a page or two. Um, and he has all of the praises in the world for her. He says that she is the goddess whom Zeus honored above all others, mm. that she is honored amongst the deathless gods of all of the gods of, um, Olympus, she has a share. Um, And so he has a lot of like really um, complimentary things to say about her that would probably provide a very different understanding of Hecate than many people familiar with her as the fearsome goddess of witches might see. She's depicted as a goddess of childbirth, a goddess of victory in the in like games, not the Olympic games. I don't know (laughs) if it's the Olympic games in particular, but like in contest. She said to stand beside kings, and she said to um, work with Hermes in the um, management of livestock. She said to work with the Earth Poseidon in, you know, seafaring, and she said to be able to be able to grant a good catch of fish, but also take it away. She's able to grant good fortune to those she favors, um, and it's a very powerful description of her but i believe that there are some theories that some people say well we don't know how serious all of this this is because it seems like he may have been a devotee or his family might have been a devotee of hecate um and so maybe he's embellishing a little bit but you know the theogony was a very significant text you know even in history um and is one of the most popular um creation stories and family trees of the gods And I I personally put a lot of stock into the words that he has to say about her. And we do see several points of it mirrored in later texts. Not all of them, but a lot of them do have have mirrors in later practice and literature as well. But that is her first mention. And then we also see her in the Homeric hymn to Demeter, which is the first kind of hint that we might get at her being a a chthonic or underworldly um, being. You know, she witnesses the, the abduction of, of Persephone from her cave. And, you know, caves are a pretty chthonic um,
0: hmm. uh,
1: structure. You know, they're in the earth. And, and the, the ancient Greeks were very, fairly literal about their spirituality. You know, offerings to the heavenly gods were burnt, so they reached the sky. Offerings to the underworldly gods were put in the earth so that they reached the underworldly gods. And so we see her witnessing this from the cave and we also see her being the goddess who leads Persephone back into the underworld after her time with her mother is up and back to the surface um, after, you know, she's done in the underworld with, with Pluton. And I, I really love that depiction of her because it shows her as being a very friendly goddess. You know, there was this very scared girl who was you know, abducted and she's in a world she doesn't know and she's stuck there and she can't leave and you know Hikati decided well I'm going to take her hand every you know um, every few months and I'm going to lead her back to her mother and you know eventually you know Persephone becomes this very powerful goddess of the underworld and a goddess in her own right and a queen mm. um, but I imagine that you know, to the ancient Greeks, at one point they would have understood her as being very horrified by her situation. You know, the Homeric King to de Demeter talks about how she's like grieving and she, you know, is like weeping to her mother that like all of these things happened to me. Um, and, you know, Hecate is said to embrace her at when, when she is rediscovered. And I love that because there's not a lot of platonic Relationships between the gods we see really depicted in Greek mythology, but Persephone and Hecate are are friends. They're Mm -hmm. very good friends, and the word companion and guide is used for her, and in reference to Hecate's role with Persephone. And so, I really like that relationship because it it's a very wholesome relationship. And the Homeric Hymn to Demeter is one of my favorites because it does show one of the the brief moments of feminist, kind of feminist resistance we see in, you know, the mythological texts of of Demeter saying, you will not have my daughter. I will blight the earth until you concede my daughter to me. And as, you know, the ancient way was that women didn't really have a say in the marrying off of their daughters. I can imagine that that story must have been very empowering for the women in Greece And that's why it is a little disappointing to me that we've reframed the story as, you know, um, Demeter is an overbearing and strict mother who is, um, you know, abusive to her daughter. I think that, you know, while maybe that story resonates with you more, I do really think that we should be acknowledging that this original context was a very powerful moment Mm. for, you know, feminine figures who get to say no you know, as the goddess Demeter is my witness, you will not have my daughter. And like, I like to think that that may have given women some kind of peace to see in their divine figures that Demeter stood up and said no. But yeah, those are two of the more early mentions of her in literature. And with the first moments we kind of see her being like um, textually incorporated into the, the Greek tradition. Mm-hmm that's why you go on several tangents
0: but (laughs) no no I I love tangents I think tangents are really important and I love watching people talk about what they're really passionate about and then I think tangents are like because you know like I can ask you all the interview questions in the world and like it might not have gotten like the type of passion that a tangent brings and I think that that's almost more important than like you know, some interview question because, like, those are the things that, like, that I really want to know or, like, what are things that you think are so important for people to know? So you mentioned her as this guide, and I really love that image of her as a guide. I think that there's a lot more to it, right? Because she's also sometimes depicted as, in different translations, sometimes considered a key-bearer.
1: Yes, so key-bearer or kleidophos which is the epithet, um... I'm still working on that pronunciation of the C-H, so um, please bear with me. But um, it, it means like key holder or key bearer. And it's in reference to oftentimes thought to be the key of to the underworld and to the gates of, of, of Hades. And it's said that her key unlocks the bars of Cerberus. Um, and I believe the Orphic hymn calls her the key bearing mistress of the whole world.
0: Whoa. And
1: um, a similar word to Kledohos is used to, um, you know, I'm not, I i don't know ancient Greek by any means, and I can't remember the Greek word exactly at this moment, but it was used in reference to the procession of her priestess at the temple uh, at Lagina. Um, and it would be this procession, I believe, where she would carry the keys to the temple. And so we see Keyholder being a very significant part of her imagery and her cultus. And, you know, the PGM refers to her as a key bearer, the Greek magical papyri. And, you know, that epithet being used for her is also present. So this kind of key holder role represents her ability to traverse between the realms, that she holds this key, which unlocks the doors. Um, You know, she's also associated with doorways um, between like the underworld, the upper world, the heavens. She's present in all, all of those realms and even in the sea. Um, you know, we kind of separate the upper world from, like, the underworld, but, you know, the three realms would have been, like, the oceans, the heavens, and the earth. Um, and so she's, she's present in all three of these, and so her ability to traverse between the realms is is kind of really necessary, and so this keyholder epithet is, seems to be in reference to her ability to kind of go between these, these realms, because the underworld is hard to get into and leave. If you're not a dead person,
0: yeah,
1: <laughs> um, and we see her and and Hermes being able to do it as well as they fulfill very similar roles a lot of the time. Um, there's some significant connections between the two of them. but key keybearer is kind of representative of this very liminal role that she fulfills of of going between worlds. But it may also be in reference to a very literal key as well and might, reference you know the keys to the temple or um you know doorways her role as guarding doorways and thresholds.
0: Yeah because I've seen her also called almost like a liminal goddess or like a goddess of boundaries um and I thought that was really interesting and I don't know how accurate it is of course.
1: It is it that's incredibly important to her ancient cult. We see her and Hermes both having uh, statues which marked boundaries you know, we have Hecatea or Hecateon in the singular, which were these three formed uh, statues of Hecate, which are the one that we many people are most familiar with, of the three women, you know, holding torches at the crossroad. Mm. Um, and these were placed often at crossroads or before hom- uh, homes. And they marked boundaries. And, you know, even the boundaries of cities sometimes were were marked with statues of Hecate. Um And we also see that with Hermes, with the herms, the statues of Hermes with like the head and the phallus. Those were often also used to mark boundaries. So there's another connection between the two of them. She is, they were placed there to protect. You know, she's called Apotropaea, the averter of harm. Um, And, you know, she's called uh, Propylia or Propylia. I'm not, again, I'm not sure on the pronunciation. (laughs) No worries. 100%. But it means like before the gate. Wow, um, that's so cool. And so, yeah, and so there's um, there's that little fun thing too. And it, it's interesting because um, in the the Orphic Argonautica, there is a reference to a torch holding statue, which is referenced as Artemis of the Gates. Um, but considering that it's in a garden, which Medea, the, the witch, presides over and is filled with these like wondrous plants and noxious herbs with a huge oak tree in the middle of it. It's kind of, and the fact that she holds torches, we can kind of glean from this that, that it's probably a name for Hecate being Artemis of the Gates.
0: Mm, interesting. And what you were saying about this iconography of her as like three different figures and holding torches is that where we get this kind of misconception of her as a triple goddess. Because I've seen her depicted as a triple goddess and then I've seen some people say that she evolved into one and like the original is not, at, like it wouldn't be accurate to call her that.
1: I don't call her a triple goddess because of the connotations that triple goddess has with, with uh, movements like Wicca, mm-hmm. where the triple goddess is in herself her own goddess and her own being, of which in a lot of their cosmology is seen to be like the goddess of which all goddesses are a part of or a manifestation of. Um, though I'm not a Wiccan, so I can't necessarily speak 100% to the way that the triple goddess is viewed within Wicca. Um, Hecate, her her role as being three formed is a lot less mystical in what we understand of it than than people might assume. Um, it's not in reference to the three faces of the moon, you know. It's not really in reference to um, any kind of like, ooh, spooky, mystical thing. In fact, the passage that we have that does talk about why she's three-formed is from Ovid. And he says it's so that she looks each direction in the road. She was oftentimes portrayed as a single body, um, but the three-formed did become very popular and it is still popular and very significant in her her cult worship. Um, But what is interesting about it is that the triple goddess um, is a more modern invention. Um, you know, she was not seen as the triple goddess of, like, Maiden Mother Crone in history. And the Maiden Mother Crone is a very uh, recent development as well. It's a kind of originally, uh, like, an archetypal way of viewing historical mythology. And I brought the quotes um, with me from Sarita de Esti's book, Circle for Hecate, which is an excellent book, Um where we see um, Robert Graves reference the Maiden, Nymph, and Crone.
0: Mm.
1: And, um, you know, Hecate becomes uh, this kind of um, Crone figure in Aleister Crowley as well. Um, But Robert Graves references that, you know, the goddess triad of Maiden, Nymph, and Crone was present in... um, the Homer came to Demeter with um, Persephone, Hecate and Demeter being the like maiden nymph and crone. Um, However, you know, this is, this is again like an archetypal kind of view. Um, And where we see Hecate being a crone most prominently in modern occult movements is with Crowley and Aleister Crowley says that, um, in, in *Moonchild* from 1917, says that Hekati is the crone, the woman past all hope of motherhood, her soul black with envy and hatred of happier mortals. He says that she is a thing altogether of hell, barren, hideous, and malicious, the queen of death and evil witchcraft. And this, to me, is a very like horrifying depiction of her, and yeah. I just, I cannot for the life of me identify with it. I, you know, I'm not a stranger to a fearsome Hecate, you know, Hecate Brimo is, is a very fearsome figure, but um, this idea of her past, you know, fertility and past the ability to have children and past beauty, it it seems to be a denigration Mm. because first of all, that's not the way that I like to view older women. Yeah, um, you know, I don't like to define women by their ability to procreate. You know, it's a very patriarchal view of womanhood. And I think ultimately the maiden mother Crone is a very patriarchal view of womanhood. Absolutely. Um, not only are not all women, you know, able to have children or give birth, um, you know, cis women, trans women, all, like a lot of women aren't able to procreate. And womanhood isn't defined by that, but to define a woman's life cycle by being a maiden or a mother or a crone seems to be a very male-centric and patriarchal view of womanhood in a way that I don't think applies to the divine either, Um, especially because it's such a human understanding. Mm -hmm. But this view of Hecate as being old and bitter it is very foreign to the ancient Greek conception of her, where she's called a maiden very explicitly. And so this view of her as like angry and bitter and old and, you know, barren. Mm. It, I can't help but view it as a demonization in a sense,
0: yeah. I mean, the perfect word is demonization, you know, And like i just I just don't understand where would this have come from this kind it almost feels like this very malicious description of her. Like, where do you think that that energy came from to have her described like that?
1: I think one of the things might be, again, the, the, her, pre- her presence in Christian literature. You know, mm. she's referenced a few times in Shakespeare. You know, the witch in Thomas Middleson's The Witch is named Hecate. Um, oh, you're right. And so I do think that she is, she becomes this like hag-like scary figure because that's how people in like the middle ages liked to view witches as like scary old ugly women um and that's just you know simply you know not the case of who she was historically but if you look at very popular like mythological sources like edith hamilton who i i really dislike she calls hekati an awful divinity um how and rude the, <laughs> i know that like i know the word awful probably is intended to mean like terrifying horrifying But that isn't even the ancient conception of her all the time either. You know, she's often called savior, you know, Mm -hmm. and she's called an inverter of harm and a guide and she's a protector. She's not awful by any means. You know, sometimes she's scary for sure. Um, There are depictions of her in the Argonautica or in, you know, Sophocles' Root Cutters fragment where she emerges (laughs) from the earth horrifying the nymphs of the forest and they flee. And she, um, you know, has snakes in her hair and she's crowned with oak branches carrying crackling fire and you hear the howling of dogs. Um, And that's a very fearsome image for sure. But also the Greeks didn't have a one dimensional view of their gods, you know, just as she was scary, she was the nurse of children. So I think that, you know, this depiction of her as, as awful or evil or old is us trying to apply a very culturally Christian perception of, you know, witchcraft um, to her, even though that's not her, that wasn't necessarily her primary role in ancient Greece. Hmm. You know, most of her cult images don't depict her as a goddess of witchcraft, but as a goddess of the crossroads and a goddess of boundaries and thresholds, and not that her depiction of as a goddess of witchcraft isn't important; it is, and it's important to me personally as well. And it is very popular in literature, right? But it wasn't the it wasn't the totality.
0: Absolutely, and like that's what I love so much about mythology and about like a lot of imagery of um, of women in ancient culture and ancient religion, is these images were incredibly diverse. They exist like almost without timelines, like almost without limits because they are divine. And I think that's what's so beautiful about them and why they're so important to look at is this incredibly diverse depiction. And But you kind of introduced a question that I wanted to ask you anyways about witchcraft because I think there is so much confusion about witchcraft in the ancient world. And so I'm so curious if Hecate was she an herbalist or a witch or both? Because I think sometimes we see someone who was an herbalist or someone who was really who really excelled with plants kind of gets assigned this label of witch.
1: For the most part, we do see her as being a goddess of witchcraft and not just herbalism. You know, it wasn't that she was just like a healer who was demonized. She was a witchcraft goddess. You know She taught in the Argonautica, It said that Nidea learned, you know all of the powers of the plants of the earth from her. But she also calls on her for some pretty wild stuff.
0: Right.
1: Hecate was a goddess of witchcraft and um, like 100%. And herbalism would have been a part of that, you know. Pharmakeia was the word for witchcraft in ancient Greece, or at least one of them. And that also had references to medicine. Mm. So there was this kind of understanding that it could be both. Um, so while I don't consider her to be either a witch or an herbalist herself, um, I do see her as being a patron of both.
0: You were talking earlier about um some like very fearsome descriptions of her. I would love to hear her, yeah, you know, like what what would Hakate have looked like if you just really pissed her off.
1: So to me, uh, I have this kind of like very poetic description of her as being I scary. Love it.
0: I love it. Um, <laughs> she
1: has and, you know, I, I, I refer to her as Hecate Brimo, which meant angry or terrifying. Um, and it's a name that's also applied to Demeter and I believe Persephone, Brimo, you know, anger um, and terrifying. Um, and it's, you know, she has, like, gray skin and, like, you know, like, black eyes, like the pits of Tartarus. And she has, like, sharp teeth and snakes in her hair. And she's crowned with, like, oak branches And she has on a tattered dress and she's barefoot and she's covered in like, you know, the dried blood of the dead and slain warriors. And, you know, she emerges from cracks in the earth and where she steps the earth cracks open and poisonous plants grow from the cracks. And this is a very poetic, like, I take some personal liberties within my own perceptions of her to describe her in this way. But that is what I view her very, like, angry, underworldly manifestations as being like. Um, and, you know, but on the other hand, sometimes I see her in like a white dress with torches, you know, a very like, you know, beautiful, heavenly, glowing maiden who is kind and warm and celestial. And I really love that she has these very two drastically different depictions that coexist at the same time.
0: Mm. With a lot of different figures from history we see them evolve as figures and we also see, you know, public opinion about them evolve. So, would you say that Hecate has had a significant evolution or even like the perception of her, do you think that that has evolved?
1: I think so. I think it's changed and shifted a lot. Even more probably the most out of one out of any of the gods, really. You know, she she starts out in Theogony and the first literary mention as a very Oronic or heavenly goddess who, you know, does a lot of stuff. None of them are particularly scary. And then you see her become a chthonic goddess um, and, you know, be a goddess of the underworld. And then you see her becoming a more fearsome goddess of the underworld. Um, and then after the fall of, like, polytheistic Greece and Rome you see um, some more fearsome literary depictions of her, like in Macbeth and you know, in The Witch by Thomas Middleton. And, um, and then in modern times, you have her depicted even different from that. Some people do still very much like to cling to this very fearsome, scary Hecate. And you know that is a part of her that I respect and appreciate and do incorporate into my own worship of her, but it's not necessarily my entire focal point. Um, I don't really have a focal point with her. It's very it's very varied in what I need um, or what I'm asking her for. Um, but a lot of people like to come at her from a very singular direction um, because a lot of people don't view her as ultimately rooted in her historical context. They like to view her as a singular archetypal being rather than one who is a part of an ancient religion. You know, she's she's often very much divorced from her ancient Greek or... Um, you know, ancient uh, Anatolian um, roles. And that's absolutely fine if that's your jam. Um, but I do think it's rather interesting that this kind of separation occurs where it's like, you know, she she's a goddess by herself. Um, and she doesn't really have relations to other deities within her pantheon for a lot of people i think that I, I just i find that really interesting because i wonder why it is that that she's separated from her pantheon so much um and i think it, it it ultimately probably has to do with her prevalence in the modern witchcraft movement as being like she's a goddess of witchcraft so she's the goddess we should worship um which makes sense you know it's a very logical conclusion yeah um, but i i do think that you know it does tend to focus specifically on certain aspects rather than the totality. Um, You know, you have this like passage in one of her historical depictions where she like emerges from the ground and she's like huge and she has like um, snake feet. She's said to have snake feet and I'm, looking through a book right now to try and find the exact description of her. But she's, like, averted by a kind of protective charm because she's viewed or depicted as a more, like, you know, fearsome kind of goddess. Um, Once I was under the tree canopy, there came, first of all, a barking of dogs. And I guess that my son was at sport and running to hounds. As so often, and that he had come into the forest with his comrades, but that was not it. Soon there was an earthquake and, simultaneously, a shout like thunder. I saw a fearsome woman approaching me, almost half a stadium's length high. In her left hand, she held a torch, and in her right, a sword 20 cubits long, which is pretty long. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Below the waist, she had snake feet, and above it, she resembled a gorgon. So far as the look in her eyes and her terrible appearance. I mean, instead of hair, writhing snakes fell down in curls around her neck and some of them coiled over her shoulders. And so, this is a rather like scary depiction of her. He came to a halt and at the same time turned back the seal ring that the Arab had given me to the inside of my finger. Hecate stamped on the ground with her snake foot and created a huge chasm as deep as Tartarus. Presently she jumped into it and was gone. And this is from Lucian's um, Philipsudis I don't know how to pronounce that. Uh, (laughs) But it's from the 170s AD or BCE or (laughs) CE. And that is a very intense depiction of her.
0: Yeah,
1: um, and it's it is one of my favorites because I love how he describes her as huge
0: mm. like
1: a cubit is, is pretty long in itself, and she's half a stadium tall.
0: Oh my gosh, she's <laughs> that's so huge!
1: Um, and you know, that kind of tracks so because she's a divine figure. Um, but it's like, I wonder, you know, what she was trying to do to this man. Um, but and he averts her with a magical charm on a ring that he has. Um, but, you know, she cracks open the earth. Um, and, you know, I, I really think that this depiction of her is rather fun. Um,
0: yeah, I really love, like, all the different animals that are included in that depiction. Yeah. And I think that's really interesting because I actually wanted to ask you about her association with animals because I've seen in some places that there's a connection with like sacred animals. And does that affect the way that she is depicted in animal forms?
1: Yeah, so she, so the big one is obviously dogs. Um, She's said to be attended by the barking or baying of hounds. Um, And so like when, you know, guard dogs, you know, they protect things, they bark when there's disturbances. And so when Hikati emerges, or probably in her ectonic manifestations, you know, these, these, these dogs are said to announce her arrival um, by howling and barking. And I do have the question of whether or not it, it's, you know, these kinds of spirit dogs that attend her or whether it's, you know, like physical dogs that attend her. Um, and, you know this isn't really directly addressed in a lot of the the depictions where it said she's attended by the baying of hounds, or if that's just a sound that accompanies her, but dogs are the big one, um, you know, and it makes sense. Dogs are guardian animals and she's a guardian of boundaries and dogs are also particularly associated with the underworld in Greek mythology. Mm, You know, you see being, you know, dog headed, um, and, you know, Ekati is associated with dogs and she's an underworld goddess. Um, but she's also depicted sometimes with animal heads. You know, she's said to be bull-headed sometimes, which represents a connection to the moon, as, you know, Selene is referenced as, as bull-horned, because the, mm. the crescent moon is like the horns of a bull.
0: Oh, I've never um, made that connection before. Yeah. That's and so cool. And
1: is said to be drawn by bulls. Um, she's also depicted, obviously, as dog-headed, but sometimes dragon and snake-headed goat-headed, horse-headed, serpent-headed, i you know.
0: Wow, Um, this actually, this reminds me a bit of um, almost like some of the Egyptian gods who had animal heads. That's really interesting.
1: And that's one of the theories as to why we know that she's a foreign goddess is that the Greek gods aren't really depicted with animal heads. Yeah. You know, they're very much more uh, anthropomorphic in their um, depictions. Though we do have figures like Hermenubis, which is the combination of Hermes and Anubis, who, who who does have an animal head, but that again is a syncretic deity, mm. rather than Akati who's by herself being depicted in this way. Um, and you know, she has other you know holy animals. Like the big one is, another big one is the snake. And you know, the serpent um, may, that association may arise from the fact that, you know, serpents live in the earth a lot of the times. And so they're particularly associated with, you know, Chthonic um, uh, beings, because serpents live physically in the ground. Mm. Um, and They're able to also pass between the surface and underground, which is again, a very similar role to Hecate. And also sometimes spirits or daemons were said to appear as serpents. You know, one of the big ones is the Agathos daemon. Um, and we also see Zeus, portrayed as a serpent sometimes we have like zeus melichios zeus ketisios who i believe is also portrayed as a serpent and so there's there's some really interesting correlations between serpents and the underworld that aren't necessarily because serpents are scary but because in my theory because they physically live in the earth and again Mm. i i take the greeks as fairly literal in their understandings of the underworld a lot of the time so there's serpents there and one of my favorite stories, which is repeated only once and it not really talked about very often, is the story of the polecat and Galinthias, um, which is repeated by Antoninus Liberalis. Um, and, you know, Galinthias was a woman who was a friend of Alchemene, um, who was the mother of Heracles. Um, and, you know, she was, get, she was in labor and, and Hera didn't want her to give birth. Um, so she had the fates and Alethea the goddess of childbirth try to stall the birth and you know keep her in labor and galinthias you know announces the birth of heracles to kind of throw them off and it, it does and you know heracles is permitted to be born and you know in retaliation the fates transform her into a polecat, which is like a ferret or a weasel but like it smells bad oh like no like it, it, it's kind of similar, they, like, mark their territories so with they like, foul-smelling, like, liquid, kind of like a skunk almost. Oh. And, you know, they were like, she will be doomed to live as a weasel in crevices and, you know, for, like, directly meddling in the affairs of the gods. But, you know, in this version of this story, Hikati takes pity on her and takes her on as her holy attendant. And I absolutely adore that story, And I don't even really care if it's not historically relevant to any other source but that one. It it really does depict for me the kind of disposition that Hekati has of being this goddess who takes on, you know, scared or outcasted individuals. And while that's not, you know, she is often referred to in modern times as the goddess of outcast, and while it's not necessarily viewed as her historical role, there are sources which kind of depict her as being a goddess who takes care of those who need it um like persephone who's frightened in the underworld Mm -hmm. and with galinthias who's outcasted from society and she kind of takes them on as her own and i think that it's a really beautiful story and you know just as much as the gods can you know destroy the lives of mortals and grant them severe punishments, they can also grant them um, care and kindness. And so I know that a lot of people don't really talk about that story, but it, it, I think it is my favorite. Because to me, it's, it's one of the only ones in which Hecate takes an active role and she does something, rather than just kind of being in the background or being this kind of figure. You know she does something she has a personality that's not just oh god she's scary or you know we appealed to her to do this um and so i really love that story
0: yeah that's a really beautiful story and oh thank you so much i like this is so lovely to hear like such a big holistic view of her and as we were discussing earlier like it's really wonderful to hear like both sides of the coin of someone who is working with her as a goddess and also someone who's looking at her from a more scholarly perspective and i actually would love to hear about um like any rituals because i know i saw you talk about i'm gonna say it wrong but in
1: i believe it's deep or, okay. or deep and it, it's it's, it's like called Hecate's Supper. A lot of people in the modern era celebrate it monthly, but there is debate historically as to whether or not it was monthly. You know, Sarah Isles Johnston, who's a great scholar in terms of studying classical Greece, um, and she wrote the book Hecate Sotira, which is um, about Hecate's role in the Chaldean oracles. And she also wrote this book called The Restless Dead, which is about encounters between the living and dead in ancient Greece. It's a favorite of mine. I love that book. And she talks about these kinds of of offerings that were given to her at the crossroads. And there's debate as to the day on which it happened. Some people say it was the new moon in the sense of, you know, the first sliver of moon being visible on, on that day or whether or not it was on, you know, the dark moon, the the night in which there's no moon in the sky. That's the one that I personally observe. And the idea of it being on the eve of the new moon kind of, to me, seems like the day before. Uh, uh, But I know that other people do it on, you know, the night on which the first sliver of moon is visible and that's fine too. Uh, But it was a night on which like, you know, it was seen that like potentially the restless dead, which are the spirits of those who typically those spirits who died young or violently are kind of roaming around with her. And so these meals would be given to her as well as kinds of the remnants of cleansings or sacrifices done in the home, um, sometimes on that day or from days prior, um, were deposited at the crossroads as a way to kind of avert these harmful spirits. And their name in ancient Greek was literally those who must be averted. Wow. Um, So they were seen as particularly a problem. And there isn't necessarily a lot of evidence that it was done monthly, as it's not really recorded on many calendars. But we do see Aristophanes saying that, um, you know, each month the rich would give a meal to Hecate. And while this is just one quote, um, I do think that that it is uh, something. It's not nothing that he says each month. Um, Though I don't know what exactly he says in the the original Greek. But he references it in the sense of um, she's uh, given a meal and that the poor devour it before it it even touches the ground, I believe, is the the phrase that he uses. And I think that that's really interesting. It's okay. He says that um, ask Hecate whether it is better to be rich or starving she will tell you that the rich send her a meal every month and that the poor make it disappear before it is even served. And so in modern times, a lot of people like to do charity as an offering to Hecate because we see, you know, that these meals may have been devoured by the poor and that that might be something that could be done as a devotional act to her. Um, So some people on this day will donate money to homeless shelters or, you know, kitchens, stuff like that. Mm. And I think that that's a really beautiful sentiment um, and a really great way to honor her. But basically, it was designed to avert some kinds of troublesome spirits, spirits that we really didn't want hanging around us because they'd carry with them miasma, which is this kind of spiritual pollution. And in this case, it would be of death. And it's interesting because these spirits were seen as particularly useful for doing magic. You know, these kinds of binding tablets or, like, poppets, you know, these kinds of doll images that were done to, like, you know, they were bound or twisted or nailed. Um, they were often deposited in the graves of people who died younger violently, as these spirits were seen to be able to carry out spells. But with the the Deep Non or Deep Non, um, it, it's an offering of aversion. It's like, please take this food and these offerings and leave me the fuck alone. You know, <laughs> I really don't want to deal with these spirits. And it was seen as these offerings were particularly. Precarious because nothing from the offering was allowed to return back in the home. Mm. You know they were they were given on shards of pottery, not just like full plates, but pot shards, um, and and left there. You know you didn't want to bring this energy back into the home. And when you left the offering, you would turn around and not look back. And on this night, you know offerings that were pretty typical consisted of you know like garlic or you know raw eggs. Um, you know, even maybe cheese or cheesecakes. These Mm. kinds of, um, it's called, um, oh goodness, Amphithon is a kind of like um, cheesecake offering. And, you know, you also see like, you know, some fish like red mullet being offered. And a lot of the offerings are ones that may have been seen as apotropaic, as able to avert spirits, like specifically garlic was seen as averting evil. And so this 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 practice, which may not have been done monthly, even though there is that quote, um, it wasn't done infrequently either. You know, if spirits were becoming a problem, this is the night on which you'd, you know, try to avert them. Um, And in modern times, it, it tends to be observed monthly on the dark moon, on the night in which there's no moon in the sky and it's become a very central part of a lot of people's modern devotion to the goddess, including myself. I like to do the traditional offering at the crossroads to avert the restless dead and to appease, you know, these kinds of spirits and, you know, the more um, potentially fearsome aspects of Hikati. And then, you know, in my home later, I'll do a ritual of devotion to her on that night as well. So it is a very prominent part in the modern world have um devotion to her and you know it's one of the historical I guess you could say festivals to her that we that we really know about and observe um and it's it's a fun time you know it's nice to be aware that you are participating in a practice that is so old and that people did thousands of years before you in similar devotion to this
0: goddess. Wow that... <sighs> That is just so incredible. I feel like I am just like soaking in all of this like incredible knowledge from you over like the last like couple hours. That's so beautiful. And like, I really love hearing about rituals. And I think in a lot of scholarly research, that's something that I miss so dearly is hearing the real practice and like the real cult of these figures. And I feel like, we have just like breezed through all the questions that I had because you're just you're just going, you know, like you're just so <laughs> knowledgeable and you just have so many amazing things to say. And I appreciate your time so much. I can't think of I can't think of a single question that we didn't cover, to be honest. <laughs> but is there anything else that you would like to add? Um
1: just that I implore people to meet each other in the middle in terms of looking at ancient spirituality i i would encourage people who are practitioners of it to engage with the work of scholars and historians and folklorists in actually looking at what do we know that happened engaging with primary sources and engaging with people who really know what they're talking about as opposed to just books written for popular consumption um in terms of like pagan spirituality is a lot of them tend to repeat very historically inaccurate information and the personal gnosis of the author without any discussion of that being what it is. But I also want to encourage scholars to meet us where we're at as well and understand that these weren't just stories and that these weren't just things that people did, but that they did mean a lot to these people and these figures in history what did these people believe rather than just what did they do? What did these people believe? is something that I feel like is missing sometimes in scholarship. Um, Mm. That kind of like aspect of like, this was a religion. We should treat it as such. And I know that this isn't a huge, like the biggest problem in scholarship. A lot of scholars are very respectful and engaged in the history in this this matter. Um, But I would like them to meet us a little bit more where we're at um, and there's a tendency to kind of scoff at modern practitioners within the academy, um, coming from like classicists and historians and folklorists and anthropologists and archaeologists. And th- that is a little disheartening. Um, it is a little bit upsetting when you are devoting your kind of life to this this pursuit of this knowledge and this practice, and you know, You know, I'm doing it in a very scholarly approach because I'm an academic, and even though my academic work focuses on feminism and, you know, gay culture and stuff like that, um, I do like to apply an academic lens to my practice, but it doesn't have to be that to be valid. History is important. I always tell people who ask me for advice on, you know, ancient spirituality and learning about it, as well as like magic and witchcraft, that your most important tool is history and your ability to discern you know, information and research. It's not a magical tool, it's its a practical one because we can learn about what works from history, not because we're stuck in our ways or archaic, because again, people did this a certain way for a reason. You know, they didn't just do it because it's like, oh, we think it's fun, they believed it worked. And I believe it worked because, you know, I'm sure that they knew their gods better than I do. Um, but also, because it's important to teach history because these religions did die out and if we're reconstructing them we should be doing it on their terms Hmm. and in their terms in a way because it's important to teach their history as it was and not as we would like it to be
0: yeah yeah i think that that respect is really important and really vital and that's kind of i know like when I interact with a lot of like the modern spiritual movement, that's something that I feel like I'm really missing in a lot of conversations. Is that respect for history? Um, because to me, like the most powerful part of mythology is the history, and I think that like when we see these incredible artifacts, and you know, like we see like these pieces of history translated, and we read the words of real people who wrote these real things. Like Akkadian poetry about Ishtar, that's crazy that we have that, you know? And like anyone that wants to ignore that and like just go with like whatever they're hearing in their own mind, like you are entitled to do that. But there is like a level of disrespect that occurs when you ignore, like you said, like this work of scholars, the original, like the original people who experienced these figures the way that they were originally depicted, which I would argue would be the most accurate. So it's kind of, it feels like at this point with a lot of revival movements, like a bit of like a war, like this fight, this push and pull between like who is right, who is accurate. And like you said, it's not about that. It's about the beauty of this experience and the beauty of this history and just trying to connect with something so ancient and important to us because it's just as important now as it was then. We just don't have all the right pieces to put it together exactly the way that it was unfortunately. But I think the gaps in our knowledge are not places for us to fill. I think that those gaps are often places that we respect that like those things might not exist the way that they did ever again.
1: Right. And I think like when you talk about like reading the words of ancient people, it is really moving. And like when I engage with mythology, I I tend to engage with it on like a metaphorical level. Like Mm. this is a story which teaches us about the roles of the gods, how they connect to each other and like what they did. Not necessarily, you know, the ancient Greeks did believe the myths, um, but I, you know, I like to view them as, as kinds of ways in which people make sense of divine interactions because, you know, we can't fully perceive the divine on their terms. You know, we, we funnel it through our own understandings. But the thing that's important about mythology to me is that I get to engage with the same texts and same stories as people who came before me thousands Mm. of years ago this is my way to connect not with my blood ancestors but with my spiritual ancestors those who followed the same path before me and that is incredible that like I get to be doing something that somebody did like 2,000 years ago that's mind-boggling yeah (laughs) Um, and also i want to point out one like final like thing that i would like people to take away from and one of the things that i appreciate about you and some of the other folklorists and mythographers that i've engaged with on tiktok who aren't practitioners is that you can honor the gods without believing in them
0: Mm.
1: and that you know because historically there were probably people who honored the gods without believing in them. Yeah. You know, isn't necessarily always the most important part of ancient religion. You know, sometimes it was just civic duty. Mm. But, you know, it was, but people did also believe in them. Don't take that as people didn't. <laughs> that, that everybody just didn't believe in the gods. But um, there is a way to go about doing this that isn't honoring the gods, that is a devotion to the gods, not necessarily in a religious way, but in a respect way. And that is what I really appreciate about the work that you do is that you are honoring the gods similarly to how I am, but you don't believe in them in, in the sense of like a kind of metaphysical sense. Mm. Um, And, but I think you're still doing kind of the same thing that I am.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you so, so much for your time and your absolutely phenomenal knowledge. And I'm so grateful that we got to do this because I actually had somebody from the Patreon Discord messaged me just a couple of days ago and she was like, you know, I really have been wanting to learn about Hakate lately. And I was like, well, like you're in luck because I'm just <laughs> about to interview like a Hakatian scholar. And um, yeah, so I think that we're all really excited about this. I know I'm really excited about awesome. this. Yeah. And I'm just so grateful that we were able to do this today. Okay, I could sing Bennett's praises forever, so I'm just going to go ahead and stop us there. And I hope that everybody really enjoyed this. And once again, thank you so, so much to Bennett. And we are all incredibly grateful for your knowledge and your wisdom and your time that you shared with us. And if you're looking for more from Bennett, they have so much more to offer. They're on TikTok and Twitter and Instagram as Batcave Freak um, honestly classic, and if you want more essay-like things, they suggested checking out their Tumblr, which is hakatianwitchcraft.tumblr.com. and hakatian is spelled H-E-K-A-T-E-A-N. So once again, thank you all so much for joining us today, and a special thank you to all of the Patreon folks, as per usual, for your incredible questions that you suggested, and for also making it possible to bring people like this onto the show. It really means the world to me that you all support my work, but that you also allow me to support scholars who are doing such important research and sharing such beautiful knowledge with all of us. So I'll see you next time on More Than Mythos.